Great to be together. Beautiful day. Isn't it an amazing day? We can thank the Lord for that too. It's so beautiful. I'm excited to ask you to open your Bible up and turn with me to the book of Luke. It's exciting. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle right now. We would love for you to have the written word in your hands. We're going to be at the beginning of Luke, and then we're going to bounce all over this gospel today to a couple places. So you'll want a Bible open. We have prepared for this moment. This is an exciting moment in our church. We took three weeks to get ready for this series that we're launching today in the Gospel of Luke. And what we did over the last three weeks, if you missed it, you can go in and listen to those sermons. But we asked the question, Lord, what do we need to do to get ready? What do we need to do to get ready to for what you want to do in and through our church as we study the Gospel of Luke. In week one, we focused on the heart and said, God, what do I need to do to get my heart ready? And then in week two, we talked about the head. How do I get my head ready for this? And then last Sunday, Eric preached a wonderful sermon on our community. What does it look like for us as a community to be ready for what God's going to do? And so it's an exciting time, and I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed to turn to the Gospel of Luke. If you're a visitor or a guest, you picked a great Sunday to join us because we're beginning a new journey together. So welcome to our church. And this journey is going to be pretty long, all right? The book of Luke is the longest gospel that we have. We will be in this study for 13 years. No, we won't. <laughs> but it could be two years, year and a half to two It's long. Luke is long. And then if you consider the fact that Luke wrote the book of Acts as well, that makes Luke the single largest contributor to our New Testament. I don't know if you knew that. And so we're going to be in this thing. We're going to go for it. But it begs the question, why would we spend that much time studying this one book? That's the question that I want to answer this morning. And I want to answer that question by telling you a little bit of the story of my own conversion to Christ. I was raised in the church, a wonderful church. I'm a church kid, all right? And so I love the testimonies about kids who grow up in great churches like our church, family churches where parents love Jesus and are following Jesus, where little children grow up watching All the adults in the community live out before them what it means to follow Christ. I was that kid. It was a privilege. I don't know if you've ever stood in here on Sunday after service, after the parents get their kids and they all come running through and they're walking on the chairs and they're making a beeline for the drum set. I was that kid, okay? That was me. My twin brother and I, after service, we would sneak into the kitchen of our church and we would eat the remainder of the communion bread. Yeah. Because we had this woman in our church, she would bake fresh bread every week. And let me assure you, it was delicious. We were in there just, we couldn't get enough of Jesus. You know, we were so spiritual. I was that kid, okay? I grew up in a church a lot like our church, a multi-generational church. It was a strong church theologically. The Bible was open. The teaching was rich. It was wonderful, and I grew up in that environment. But what I want you to know is that that did not make me a Christian. Growing up in a church did not make me a Christian. That didn't actually happen. The full conversion moment did not happen in my life until I was 18 years old. 
And how it happened was that I found myself at a camp where I heard the story of Jesus lifted up in beauty and power. It was a little camp called Malibu Club. I wonder if you heard of it. I wonder if you heard of it. Malibu Club. I went there as an 18-year-old. And I remember sitting in the club room every night hearing the speaker. And, and I, I don't remember that he was all that terribly dynamic. But what he did every night as he preached the gospel was he opened his Bible and he went to the gospel accounts. And there was something about the way that he, that he told the story of Jesus. He just lifted the accounts right out of the gospels and they came to life. And I remember thinking things about Jesus that I'd never thought before, even as a church kid. I remember thinking, Jesus is so compelling. Surely there has never been anyone who has lived like Jesus. I want to know more. I, wonder what, I remember thinking, I wonder what it would have been like to be there, to have a front row seat. I remember thinking, I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to learn what it means to follow this Jesus. I remember thinking, I want to surrender my life to this Jesus. And it all happened because this man in great humility, he believed that if all he had to do was lift up the compelling story of Christ and that Jesus himself would compel people to become his followers. Amen? Amen? Even if it's wrong, say amen. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we learned that from Pastor Eric today, by the way. Okay. I think that that speaker learned this from the Gospel of Luke. And I'd like to show you it today. Will you turn with me to the beginning of the gospel, Luke chapter 1. Today we're going to study the first four verses. And then I'm going to show you a couple other places in the book. But I hope you're ready because we've tried to get ready. Here's what Luke believed would happen if he just told the story of Jesus. Look at it with me. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke is the only gospel writer of the four who actually addresses the person to whom his work is dedicated. You saw his name there, Theophilus, or as Luke says it, most excellent Theophilus, right? That phrase could actually be translated, your excellency. And it was, a, it was a way of addressing someone who had high status. You would use your excellency or most excellent to describe someone who, probably someone of some means who was highly educated. And actually, you can't see it in the Greek, but the way that, Greek, uh, that Luke even begins his letter, his Greek is so elegant. It's very sophisticated. It's very learned. It's obvious that he's writing his gospel to someone who was well-read, well-educated. Luke believed that his gospel would be shared and it would be read by people who were discerning. And so he wrote with elegance. 
Many people think that Theophilus was a patron who funded the whole project, Luke and Acts. I'll tell you a little bit more about Theophilus in in a little bit, but what I want to point out is that this is the only gospel where the gospel writer actually takes a little bit of time and says, hey, before I get into the account about Jesus, I want to tell you a little bit about what I've written. What is a gospel account? Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't explain what they're writing. They just dive in. So Mark, I'll put up the beginning of his gospel. Mark just jumps to the chase. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then Mark just goes, and he just talks about Jesus. John doesn't describe what he's doing. John gets deeply theological because he's John, all right? He's very philosophical. John just, he does a cannonball into the theological deep end. He's like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's really deep, right? It's awesome, right? And Matthew is riveting. Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He begins with the genealogy, cutting-edge stuff, right? But Luke, Luke goes, Theophilus, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I've written and why. So that you can have the right expectations as you study this book, as you read it. You're an educated guy, Theophilus, and I want you to know what I've written So Luke says, here's a couple things you need to know. The first thing I want you to know is that I did a thorough investigation of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what he means in verse 3. Did you see it when he says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely. Here's what Luke is saying. I was meticulous. I was thorough. I investigated. I looked into this. Closely. We know from other places in the New Testament that Luke was a close friend of Paul, and he was one of Paul's traveling companions, which means he was with Paul on a lot of the missionary journeys. And because of this, Luke had personal contact with eyewitnesses, which he talks about, but he also had exposure to all of these narratives and all of the beginnings of all these attempts to write down the recording of the life of Christ. Luke had access probably to the very, very first draft of Mark's gospel. And when you study Luke, a lot of Mark is, is here. There's a point in 2 Timothy where Paul writes to Timothy right before his trial, and he says, I'm alone. The only one who's with me is Luke. And he says, please send Mark with all the parchments. And so Mark showed up, and my, I can guarantee you he brought with him his draft of Mark's gospel, which he wrote because he'd spent time with Peter. And Luke, so Luke has all of this access to eyewitness accounts and different narratives, different recordings of the sayings of Jesus, and he poured over the material and he studied it meticulously. Luke was a doctor. Paul describes him as our beloved physician, Luke. So he was a man of science. He was an intellectual. He cared about being precise. And the point of it all is to say, Theophilus, you can trust what you're about to read. If you give this gospel account a fair reading, if you open your heart in humility, I guarantee you, you will be convinced by the person of Christ. Amen? How about you? Luke says, I did a thorough investigation. But the other thing that he says, right there in verse 3, look at it. He says, I want you to know, Theophilus, that I went back to the beginning. 
So when he says, when he says, I followed all these things closely for some time past, that phrase actually means going back to the origins. And what it means is that Luke was interested in going all the way back to the beginning of the story. He was like an explorer who wants to find the beginning of a river. So he goes on a journey to figure out how did this thing start? Do you remember in the gospel where Jesus is on the cross and he says to his mother, John is standing next to his mother and he says, Jesus is about to die. And he says, Mary, this is now your son, John. And he says to John, this is now your mother. And John took care of Mary. They lived in Palestine. And that means that Luke had access to both John and to Mary, the mother of Christ. He knew her personally. And many church historians record a tradition that says that Luke interviewed Mary, the mother of Christ. And do you realize why that's so significant? We look at your gospel account, turn and just look over chapters one and two. Do you know that 30% of the gospel of Luke is original only to Luke? Only Luke records the story of the shepherds and the angels in the nativity story. And the reason for that is because he interviewed the mother of Christ herself. Amazing, amazing. He went back to the beginning. Think where the church would be if Luke had not spent time with Mary and got this precious, precious account. It's one of my favorites. Here's what's gonna happen, River West. Because we're gonna preach chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to preach the shepherds and the angels in the middle of November. It's going to freak you out because you're like, it's not even Christmas, dude, but that's what you get when you teach the scriptures. We'll be there in November, and it'll be amazing. And you know why? Because Luke went back to the beginning. Aren't you thankful? You don't look thankful. I'm thankful. (laughs) He says, I did a thorough investigation. He says, I went back to the beginning. But here's the most important thing Luke says. He says, Theophilus, the thing I want you to know is that I wrote this account carefully and I ordered it for a purpose. I put the account together with a purpose in mind. That's what he says there in verse three. Did you see it? It seemed good to me to also having followed all these things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent, Theophilus. It was orderly. I have this vision, I have this picture of Luke. Whenever I read this, I get this picture of Luke and he's sitting at his desk and there's candlelight and he's pouring over all of these parchments and scrolls of papyrus. He's gathered all of these different things. He probably has one of the original copies of the gospel of Mark. He has all these pieces of paper where he's personally taken notes because he was an, an investigator. And there he is, and he's pouring over, and he's got a cup of coffee or tea or something, you know. He's got a little hummus and and pita bread, and he's snacking, and he's writing. And I picture Luke praying. And he's praying because he knows, I have to come up with something orderly. I'm not going to be able to include it all. There's way too much information. If you could see that moment spiritually, you know what you would see? You would see the Holy Spirit there with Luke leading him, because Peter said the scriptures were written by human authors as they were carried along by the spirit of the living Christ. Thank you. Take that to the bank, River West. 
Is this, is this a book just written by people who made up what they wanted to say? Absolutely not. The spirit of the living Christ assisted and carried along human authors as they wrote. I see Luke falling on his knees, crying out, please, God, give me direction. Help me to know what to cut. There's so much. John said in John 21, he said, you know that there were so many stories about Jesus that if they had all been written down, the whole world couldn't contain the books. I get that as a pastor. So much about writing a sermon is about what do I cut out? I can't say everything that the Lord has shown me, so I have to cut and carve and order, and I see Luke doing that. And why did he do it? What was the purpose of this orderly account? Well, that brings us to verse 4, and it brings us to the most important word in the preface. We look at it. I bet you already know what the word is. Here's what he said to Theophilus. He said, I wrote this that you may have certainty about the things that you've been taught. Certainty. In the Greek, that word is the last word in the sentence for emphasis. It's as if Luke is saying, that's the word I want ringing in your ears as you turn now to verse 5 and you begin the account. The whole point of this is certainty. What does it mean? An amazing word. The word actually means to not totter. It's this beautiful word that describes someone whose their foundation is so firm that they're no longer wavering back and forth. You know what I mean? You know what it feels like to totter where you feel sort of out of control? Have you ever been on a boat, like a really small boat, and then there's always someone obnoxious there, and they stand up, and they go, oh, and they, like, rock the boat back and forth. Don't be that guy. It's annoying, all right? But you know that feeling where you feel like you're about to go over? That's tottering. It's, it's wavering. It's, it, Luke is describing someone who, for some reason, maybe they've gotten to a place in their Christian life where they feel really uncertain. You know what that feel, feels like? Have you ever been there? It appears that Theophilus was tottering. Maybe he was a baby Christian. Maybe he was not yet a Christian. Maybe he was so new to the community of Christ that he felt like an outsider. And so he was sort of wavering. I always have to remind myself what, it, what it's like to visit a church. Maybe this is your first son and you're like, these people are weird. Where am I? You know, and you kind of come in and you feel a little uncertain. Luke would say, hey, I have a solution to that tottering. I want to show you the person of Jesus Christ. If I can show you Jesus, you will be compelled. You will know the gospel is true. And so he writes to Theophilus. River West, I have been praying for our church. And I know you have been too. But what would happen in our church as we study this gospel is that God would do something new in our hearts. And what God wants to do is he wants to create this firmness in your heart. He wants you to be exposed to the person of Christ in such a way that you become so solid and certain. And then he wants it to spill out in a contagious way into our community. How would that happen? It would happen as you build up the courage and you take a risk and you invite a friend or a neighbor and you say, I'm going to go on a journey. I'm going to 
I'm going to listen as Luke gives me a front row seat to the life of Christ. I'd love it if you joined me for that. That's what we've been praying for. I hope you'll join us. So here's what I'm going to do. In the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I'm going to show you a couple things about what we're going to experience in this gospel. We're going to leave chapter 1. What I want to do is I want to show you three unique traits about Luke's gospel. There are many, but I just chose three. And the three that I chose, I chose specifically because they create certainty. All right? Here's trait number one. You could write this down if you wanted. More than any other gospel, Luke lifts up the multifaceted beauty of the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. Luke uniquely makes this attempt to lift up the message of the gospel and show the reader how multifaceted it is, how multi-orbed. Think of a diamond with all the edges. Every edge is beautiful. And Luke is like this brilliant jeweler who just takes that diamond and periodically he'll turn it and he'll say, have you thought about this? It's amazing. I hope you have. And then he'll turn it again and he'll show you. Have, you. have you understood this aspect of the gospel? It's so powerful. You need this to be certain. I remember when I was a 21-year-old, I walked into a diamond store four blocks from Lamy University because I was in love. And I walked into this diamond store. It was called Diamond Discounters. <laughs> okay? No one said to my wife, he went to Jared. They said, he went to diamond discounters. <laughs> okay, I walked in there and there was this salesman and he was brilliant. And he pulled out this diamond and when he held it up, it was really, it was really um, unamazing because it was diamond discounters. No, and then what he did, he was so brilliant, he took a piece of black velvet and he laid it out in front of me and he set that diamond down on it and he shined light on it. And then it went, and then he would turn it and light would flash in my eyes and he was like let me tell you about the clarity of this stone and he was like how much is your budget and I told him he was like hold on he went to a bottom drawer <laughs> let me tell you about this diamond you know and he turned it okay if the gospel is a diamond Luke is the black velvet that gets laid underneath and Luke says let me show you how profound the gospel is okay let me show you one spot go to chapter 4 Verse 16. In Luke's gospel, he starts Jesus' ministry in Galilee with a moment where Jesus walks into a temple, grabs a scroll, and reads from the book of Isaiah. And what Jesus says about the gospel in this passage is profound. Here's what happened. When Jesus came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That's the word gospel. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which is unbelievably audacious, unless you are the son of the living God. Jesus said, all those prophecies, all those promises of what God would do, the good news, what I want you to know is that's being fulfilled in my presence because of my coming into the world. But did you notice how Jesus describes what Isaiah said about the gospel? There's all this language that we don't use very often. Words like liberty. Did you see it? He, he repeats it twice. It means to be released from bondage. So Jesus is saying, is the gospel about the forgiveness of your sins? Absolutely. But if that's the only side of the diamond that you look at, you're missing out on something else. There's this sense of being released from bondage, bondage to sin, bondage to a spiritual enemy in our world. Jesus was constantly freeing people from spiritual bondage. Jesus says, you know what's at the heart of the gospel? Having your spiritual eyesight restored so that you can see God. Sin blinds us to the reality of God. The gospel takes away the veil. Jesus said, I've come to recover people who are in the bondage to illness and being marginalized. In Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel, people who are on the out, the down and out, the low, the marginalized in society, what happens in Luke's gospel is those outsiders become the insiders. It's amazing. And Jesus says, that's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. So when you think of the gospel, if all you think of is substitutionary atonement, which is absolutely true, but you don't understand the other aspects, it's like sitting in a room where you're supposed to be hearing surround sound, but there's only one speaker working, all right, which drives me crazy, you know? You know that sound when all the speakers, the 7.1 Dolby digital surround sound, and they're all working perfectly in unison, and it's just like this, ah, that's what Luke does. He says, I want you to hear it all. And he says, the reason that will change you is your appreciation, your love, your certainty that Christ is Lord is just going to explode on you. So Luke, Luke, that's what Luke does. He lifts up the multifaceted beauty of the gospel. The second thing that he does more than any other gospel writer, Luke focuses on the human heart. He cares about your heart. And actually, more precisely, what I should be saying is it's Jesus who cares about your heart. Luke is just recording the way that Jesus did it. He has Jesus teaching and healing and instructing in such a way where Jesus is always targeting your heart. Let me show you one example. Turn to chapter 6. This will be very familiar teaching. I could go to a bunch of places, but I'll, I'll just show you this one spot. Jesus is teaching. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. And here's what he said. He said, no good tree bears bad fruit, 
nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is really profound. Jesus is saying, your words, your thoughts, the attitudes of your heart, the source of those, there's this deep well back behind, underneath all of those things, and it's, it's that deep, bottomless well of your heart. I don't know about you, but a lot of times something will happen and I'll say something that's sort of out of bounds or something will come out and, and I'll say, I can't believe I said that, you know? And I'll be like, oh, that's so unlike me, you know? And Jesus would say, you're kidding yourself, dude. <laughs> Do you know where that came from? came from your heart. It's just you had a momentary lapse where your guard was down and the real thing came out, right? And so Jesus is saying, that's the whole point. That's why the gospel is about your heart. Christianity is not about your external religious practices. Jesus does not care about external religious practices. The only thing that Jesus cares about is your heart. That's where the gospel has to go, right? You know how, this is such good news. This is why Jesus was always locked full horn with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were all about the external, right? That was their thing. All they cared about was how they looked, how they appeared, being religious. And Jesus was like, yeah, but your hearts, they're, it, they're, there's no integration there. And so Jesus said, the problem with that is that that's the kind of stuff that turns people off to religion is when they see kind of those people who are really religious, but they can also tell that there's no real heart-level thing going on there. Have you ever thought about that? Most of the people in our world who have a problem with Christianity, they have a problem with that kind of pharisaical Christianity. My wife and I were talking to a young woman in our church, and she was telling us the story about how she has these friends who are not believers, and they've given her a really hard time about our Christian faith. And recently they were grilling her and they were like, how can you possibly be a Christian? And they just went down the list of all the things about Christianity. They're like, this, this, this is so dumb. I can't believe this, all that stuff. You know, most of it they got from the news probably, but they're, they're working down the thing. And she, it was brilliant. She said, she said, can I just say one thing? She was like, does, it, does my life look like any of that stuff? You've seen my life, how I've lived my life before you. And her friends are like, oh, yeah, you're not like that at all, right? Why is that? Because Jesus goes after your heart. He transforms your heart. That's what he wants to do. You know what's going to happen? We're going to study the Gospel of Luke. And Luke's going to show us all these different kinds of characters, different people who interact with Jesus. And they're all going to respond to Jesus differently. And then Luke's going to get underneath and he's going to show us what's going on in their hearts. What causes a person to keep Jesus at a distance? What causes a person to be really reluctant to Christ? What causes a person to jump in with both feet ready? Luke's going to show us the heart condition underneath. It'll be a blessing to you. So that's what Luke does. He targets the heart. And then finally and lastly, and this will 
lead us into communion. It's probably the most important. Luke gives us a personal, upfront encounter with Jesus through the powerful medium of story. He tells the story of Christ. And he tells it in such a way that the life of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the behavior of Christ, it comes alive. And it's like you're in the front row. Because Luke knows something. He knows we are story people. Story is how we make sense of our world. We, We need a good story. How many times have you been in a situation where someone's trying to present a truth to you and you're like, I need a story to help me get this, right? Story is, it helps us learn. We, we learn by watching someone go through an experience and the way they respond. We, we can imagine ourselves there and then we go, oh yeah, I, I, I'm getting it now. So many of us were concrete learners. And Jesus got this. He understood this implicitly. You know, the moment when Jesus was, he was locked in with the Pharisees and they were really self-righteous and he, he wanted he wanted to give away a truth. He wanted to say, hey, uh, the, way of, of, the way of God is, is, is a way of humility. You need to be humble. He could have just said, God prefers humble people. And then he could have walked away and they'd be like, whatever. But what he did is he told a story. Do you remember the story? I'll read it to you. It'll be on the screen. Luke 18. Don't turn there. Just listen in. Jesus says, hey, there were two men. They went up into the temple to pray. You remember this story? One of them was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other fools. Right? Don't ever start your prayer like that, by the way. I'm so thankful, Lord. I'm not like these other people around me. And then he goes on, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. And saying to God, he said, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. God, pour out your mercy on me. And then Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, but the other did not. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself would be exalted. Now, Jesus could have just said, hey, God prefers humility, but what he did is he told a story. And you can picture yourself there, and you can say, how would I pray? Man, I hope I would pray like that tax collector because I do need God's mercy in my life, right? Jesus knew something. Jesus knew that the way that a person becomes a disciple of Jesus is by by watching his life, getting a front row seat. There's something about studying the gospel of Luke where you see Christ in action, Luke doesn't just give away theological platitudes. He shows you the truth in story form. He doesn't just say, hey, Jesus suffered for your sins. He says, let me tell you the story of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And you see Jesus on his knees and he's in agony and blood has come from his pores. And the reader knows, that's my Savior. He's willing to suffer for me. And the reader also is there with the other disciples and they're falling asleep. And he's wondering, will I be more captivated by this than they are? So being there, being in the moment, being in the story, Luke knows that's, that's how Jesus made disciples. And then Luke says, I'm inviting you in. Will you join me on this story? Do you know why we celebrate communion every Sunday in the life of the Christian church? We know it because Luke told a story. Here's the story he told. I'll put it on the screens. Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at a table, and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep doing this as a way to remember what I'm about to do. I'll give myself for you. Then what did he do? He took a cup Likewise, and after they had eaten, he said, this is the cup that is poured out for you. It's the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Jesus commissioned the church. And because of that story, it captivated the imagination of the disciples, and they knew this is something we're supposed to weave into the regular rhythm of the life of our worship. And so every Sunday we come, and we come to the table, and we take this representation of Christ's body, which he gave and we do it because we love Jesus. We want to be like him. We want to follow him. And so this morning, I'm inviting you. I'm not just inviting you to eat a cracker and drink some juice. You know what I'm inviting you to do? I'm inviting you to remember that the person that you follow as a disciple, this was the very person who went to a cross in your place. He loved you so much. He took your sin on his brow so that you could go free, so the shackles could fall off. Jesus said, I'm willing to suffer for you. And so this morning when you come and you take the bread and the cup, thank Christ anew. Turn your heart over to him. Perhaps you came in this morning tottering. How I pray that as you take communion this morning, you'll walk out certain that Jesus is your Savior and that he's the most compelling person who's ever lived. He's worth following. Let's worship him this morning, River West. Will you bow your heads with me and I'll invite the worship team to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege that we have the Gospel of Luke this gospel was not put together carelessly. Every single word matters, which is why it's our great joy as a church to embark on a study where we'll look at every word. 
every verse, every chapter, no matter how long it takes us, <laughs> we want to know Christ. Father, would you change us? Would you penetrate our hearts, transform us from the inside out? We captivate our imagination as we hear the accounts of how Jesus healed people, how he taught, how he listened, how he showed compassion. May we get a vision for our lives of what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple, Lord. And we pray, Lord God, that it would spread into our community and that by your grace and by your mercy, you would do a new reviving work in this community, we pray. And we ask that it would happen because of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Everyone said, amen.